Um, if you're at all new to this particular community, our uh, rhythm, so to speak, here at Vin City consists of two different areas of uh, focus when it comes to teaching and study, what we do here on Sunday evenings. Every few months, we take on uh, new spiritual disciplines or uh, what we call practices of emotional health. Um, and we kind of uh, put those both in the basket of what we like to call the practices. And we teach about them here on Sunday evenings for a bit. And then we gather in smaller groups called Van City Communities, and we actually attempt to give those things a shot, be they spiritual disciplines or practices of emotional health. But when we're not in the midst of a new practice, we've been working our way through this in-depth study of uh, one first century biography of Jesus called the Gospel of Matthew. If you've been uh, paying attention to the calendar, the study has so far spanned more than a year now, and we're on chapter six, so we're making great progress. Uh, but there are reasons for which we continue to draw our attention to this ancient text. One is that we are a community compelled by the authority of the scriptures, something we talk about quite a bit. But understanding the scriptures, we think, is very hard work. And we want to do that work well. We want to give it a, a good shot. Another reason is that in order to understand the practices, the spiritual disciplines and principles of emotional health, emotional health, we want to understand the life and the teachings of the one from whom the practices are derived. So all that to say, we're not just occupying time here. We didn't just hit Matthew on a dartboard. We are learning what it means to practice the way of Jesus together. So with that in mind, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Uh, in the 2017 documentary, Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, uh, actor Jim Carrey describes his journey as a stand-up comedian. And in it, he recalls that early in his career, he was well aware of his ambition. He wanted to be successful, and by that, he defined, uh, he defined that term in terms of um, you know, monetary gain, celebrity status, that sort of thing. He was well aware of what he wanted to be, rich, famous, successful, a celebrity, all that. But in his desire to strike a chord with his audience as a comedian, he had begun to ask himself a, a nagging question again and again and again. What do they want? What do they want? What do they want? He would ask himself and turn it over. It kept him up at night. And one evening, uh, Carrie claims to have been stirred from the deep, a deep sleep, and he sat up in bed with the realization they want to be free from concern. And so Jim began to create an alter ego, a man who was completely free from concern in the wackiest sense of the word. And in beholding such a man, his audience, he speculated, would themselves taste, if not for just a brief spell, what it meant to leave their worries behind and to be truly free from concern. But it was an act by his own admission. It was a facade. Jim went home concerned for his career, for his success, for his reputation, and his audience returned to the drudgery of their worry in theory. It was a sham, but within that sham, there was a flicker of light. Though Jim's efforts did not accomplish his goal for either himself or his audience in the truest, truest sense, he actually was right. We do want to be free from concern. We want to be free from worry. And we are waiting for that capable teacher to confirm what we all secretly hope but simultaneously doubt, which is that we can possibly be set free from worry. And in steps Jesus of Nazareth. So let's read Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, 
What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not, are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spend. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But... Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, I realize uh, it's been a while, but do your best to sort of retrace where we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 19 of chapter 6, where this collection of teachings on money and possessions and worry begins, Jesus talks about uh, money and material things, and he warns against the pursuit of wealth uh, or what he called storing up treasures on earth. He elucidates the inherent danger of accumulation for accumulation's sake, greed, selfishness. After all, no one, he says, can serve two masters, so you have to pick. You can serve God or you can serve money. In Jesus' estimation, it has to be one or the other. You can't do both things. From there, in verse 25, Jesus brings that line of thinking to a conclusion by drawing a distinction between the pursuit of comfort and security and finances over and against the pursuit of life in the kingdom of God. In other words, all of these ideas are interconnected. Jesus is saying, listen, if you store up treasures in heaven rather than with God, if you serve God rather than money, or money rather than God, if you practice greed rather than generosity, it will all be for naught. It will not add a single hour to your life, and your treasure on earth will rot, and your whole body will be full of darkness. But if you store up treasures with God rather than in your wallet, if you serve God rather than money, if you practice generosity, then you can find freedom from worry. And this freedom comes about in a seemingly counterintuitive way, but we'll get to that in just a bit. Tonight's passage can actually be divided up into the following uh, structure. So you have the prohibition, do not worry, and then you have rhetorical questions. You get two analogies, one's about birds and one's about flowers. <laughs> And then you get the prohibition again, do not worry. Then you get this whole bit about pagans are the ones who worry and God will take care of you. So here's how you rebel against that notion. Do not worry because it doesn't work. A bit of wisdom in the end. So let's work through each point, point by point. First you have the prohibition and questions. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. And listen to this. Worry reveals worship. Think about that for a second. Worry actually reveals what you worship. If you worry about finances, you may worship financial security. If you worry about your reputation, you may worship status. If you worry about your next meal, you may worship food. If you worry about sickness, you may worship health. If you worry about your comfort in the general sense, it may be because you worship comfort. 
When Jesus uses the word your Bible translates as worry, he uses this Greek verb, merinaho, and he uses the word six times in this passage. And interestingly, that word can be translated in a positive sense as, you know, caring about something in a good way. But in this passage, as you may have guessed, the word's negative usage is employed, and it means, quote, internal disturbance at the emotional and psychological level that disrupts life. Another way of translating the word could be an anxious endeavor to secure one's needs. From there, Jesus goes on with analogies and asking rhetorical questions about the analogies. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Do not worry about your clothes. See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, an ancient king in the Old Testament, all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So having broached the topic of worry in the general sense, Jesus begins to unpack the futility of such a thing. He does so with pragmatic examples, saying essentially worrying doesn't help. It doesn't add a single hour to your life. And he used very tactile examples from nature, things that in theory he could just point to from where he was standing. And he does this as an appeal to what's called God's providence which is the way God does and does not govern and operate the universe. After all, every disciple of Jesus believes that God is involved in the universe. But the question is, how exactly? And that's where debate enters in. In what way does God interact and intervene with his creation? So for clarity's sake, let's take a very short detour into systematic theology. Um, there are two primary understandings of God's providence. There are all sorts of nuance to each of these two views, but in very, very broad strokes for our purposes tonight, here are the two main views. The first is called meticulous providence, and this is the idea that every single thing that happens in the universe, good or evil, is determined by God. None of the early church, earliest church fathers believed this, and the church rejected this view for a few hundred years. Um, even after Augustine, who was the first person to sort of espouse this view in the specific sense around the fifth century, uh, proposed that God was controlling everything, the idea was met with, met with immediate pushback. But eventually, the idea was embraced, and it began to grow, in particular during the Protestant Reformation by folks like John Calvin and Martin Luther around the 15th and 16th centuries. Today, obviously, many Christians actively believe this very thing, um, and many others talk and pray as though, believe, they, as though they believe it, even though they don't technically believe it, because they say things like, oh, well, you know, God has a plan, or God is in control, or whatever it might be. But if you actually press those people, many of them would be reticent to like, attribute something like the abuse of children to God's specific control. So the second broad view is something called general providence. And this is the idea that God is absolutely involved in and interacting with the universe, but he has given human beings and spiritual beings, what you and I would call angels or demons, their own unique will, and they have a certain level of autonomy to exercise that will. So you and I often choose things that go against God's will, and for the sake of God's loving freedom and his desire for reciprocation and relationship, God doesn't necessarily override those decisions. In this sense, there are all sorts of things that often transpire in the world that God doesn't like, that God doesn't choose, that he doesn't control, that he doesn't will, that he doesn't plan, that he doesn't ordain, and that doesn't mean that he isn't active and involved in the world. He is at work in the world doing good, and he even brings good out of the evil that he does not orchestrate. And of course, ultimately, God will have the final say in restoring the world to rights once and for all in the coming kingdom. 
One way of summarizing this idea is God is in charge, not in control. If you've been at Van City for any length of time or if you know me at all personally, you know we wholeheartedly reject the idea that God controls and determines everything that happens. It's a notion that I am personally uh, outright hostile toward, but we do affirm God's providence. Now, why does this matter for our text this evening? Because in Jesus' command to relinquish worry, Jesus appeals to God's providence. He's like, look at the way that God is involved in the world. So when Jesus draws his disciples' attentions to birds or to flowers or, and to God's care for birds and flowers, what is Jesus saying? I don't believe personally that Jesus is saying, hey, listen, everything happens for a reason. Everything works out in the end. God will definitely give you food and clothes, so just don't worry about it. And it doesn't take a theologian to work that one out. Are, are there people in the world who follow Jesus and yet have no food or basic resources? Yes, yes thank you. There are, there, are, there are people in the world who have neither of those things. So let's keep working through the text and figure, what, figure out what Jesus is getting at. In verse 31, Jesus reiterates his first warning. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? And here's why. He goes on in verse 32 to remind his disciples of the types of people that do worry, and he calls them pagans. The pagans are the ones who worry. Now, in the broadest sense, the word pagan refers to someone who is outside of the family of God. It's not necessarily a pejorative term in and of itself, but remember Jesus' specific context. At the time of this teaching, first century Israel, who were the non-Jewish, non-God-fearing pagans all around Jesus and his disciples? Romans, thank you. Oh, good job, Casey, thank you for that. The Romans, who, worry, who are the ones who worry about money and resources? The oppressors do that. The lavish, opulent, corrupt, pagan oppressors do that. And they act as a living example of what Jesus' disciples are not to be. And the question is, well, why not? Because Jesus' disciples are not pagans. They belong to the family of God. They believe in their creator God. They are in active relationship with the living God who knows and sees and cares for them. You guys aren't Romans. They're the ones who worry about this kind of stuff. So what should they do instead? Verse 33, seek first his, God's kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The idea is to go after two things instead of worry, God's kingdom and God's righteousness. But those terms are often a little fuzzy for a great many of us, so let's see if we can clarify them a bit. What is the kingdom of God to begin with? That phrase, I would argue, can be translated as God's rule or God's reign, or put simply, the kingdom of God is the area of God's active and realized rule in the world, meaning the kingdom of God is the active exercising of God's power and God's authority. So when Jesus announced his famous summary statement, the kingdom of God has come near, you might paraphrase that summary of Jesus' message thusly, the world is under a new authority and a new rule. A new king has come to power. Satan and his henchmen have been dethroned. A new society is erupting from the seams of the old one. It's time for justice. It's time for healing. It's time for an entirely new way of life. The best definition of God's kingdom that I know of comes from Jesus himself, who was something of an authority on the topic. In his collection of teachings that we call the Sermon on the Mount, what we're working our way through right now, in, uh, which teach, in which Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he gives them a template and he says, your kingdom come, your what? 
will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is a device employed in a Hebrew poetry called parallelism. It's basically two different ways of making the exact same statement, meaning your kingdom come is essentially the same as saying your will be done. The kingdom of God is the space in which God's will is done or where what God wants to happen happens. This could be a man, a man's life, a woman's life, a child's life, a neighborhood, a city, a school system, a place of business, um, an instance in your day in which God's will is actively realized. That is the kingdom of God come near, which is why Jesus can, in an interaction, say, oh, this guy's given his money to the poor. The kingdom of God has come to this house. One day, this will be true of an entire cosmos. It is a space in which God is actively on the throne, so to speak. God is king. He is actively exercising his power and authority to the degree that his people are obedient, and what he wants to happen actually happens as a result on earth as it is in heaven. Next, what is God's righteousness? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Here, in this sense, it actually describes God's will, what God wants, meaning those who seek God's righteousness are those who conform their lives to what God wants, and what God wants is being revealed in Jesus through this set of teachings. So in essence, those who live according to the Sermon on the Mount are seeking God's righteousness. God's righteousness describes right living those obedient to God in thought and in word and in deed. And God's kingdom is where the effects of that way of life are made manifest in the world. Does that make sense? So when you actually live the way of Jesus and it affects the world, that's God's righteousness giving birth to God's kingdom in the world. Seeking God's kingdom and righteousness essentially is practicing the way of Jesus together as a people. And of course, Jesus adds this interesting promise, quote, and all these things will be given to you as well. And that's a really confusing one, isn't it? After all, if Jesus means that we'll receive provision when we practice the way of Jesus, then there's a huge problem with that line of thinking. If we're completely honest or really just logically consistent, it just seems that that isn't the case and has not been the case in history. Um, I read this week, uh, just this week, that a scholar during a season of his life in which he was a, a missionary in the Philippines became convinced that there's no good way to teach this passage to the poor because it seems offensive, it seems flippant and reductive to just tell someone who's starving, don't worry, God's going to give you everything that you need. And then he became convinced that there's no, no good way to teach this passage to the rich either because it lets them off the hook because you're essentially saying, don't worry about money, hoard it up for all you want, but just seek his kingdom, don't worry about it, it's all coming to you. They're like, it sure is, it has been. And then he realized that he was missing something important in this text. He wrote this. This text does not say that we should be unconcerned whether others have enough to eat or wear. Jesus' whole ministry teaches the opposite. Instead, we are commanded to take our eyes off ourselves, off our lives, off our own selfish anxiety and things for ourselves. But I would argue this is not the only misunderstanding that's often tethered to tonight's text. The other, I think, is how often we imagine ourselves in a relationship with God that's governed by a sort of you do for me, I do for you arrangement. And most of us do this subconsciously um, because this is, tr and this is tremendously important. So listen to me for a second. Very few of us would actually claim to believe that God will meet all of our needs when we follow him faithfully. But oh, how many of us live this way in secret or believe this privately? 
meaning we think of ourselves in this sort of tit-for-tat arrangement with God. He's good to us when we're good to him, and he's unkind and uncaring and mean when we breach contract. But Jesus understands God as not a contract keeper. He's a kind and loving father. We are not in a tit-for-tat contract relationship. We are in a covenant loving relationship. So Jesus might be getting at something else altogether when he describes seek first and these things will be added to you or given to you. Think back to the trajectory of these teachings on money. And remember, they're all connected. So Jesus commands his disciples to uh, place their value and trust on treasure in God, not money, not possessions. The treasure on earth will rot, it will be destroyed, but your treasure in God will endure forever. Jesus warns against greed and selfishness that fills a person with darkness, warning that no one can chase after money and after security while simultaneously chasing after God with their whole person. And then Jesus commands his disciples to free themselves from worry. He says, look, when your treasure is in God, when your eye is healthy, so to speak, when you serve the true master rather than mammon, the God of money, what is there to worry about? After all, your priorities are no longer on the kinds of things which norm, which people, on which normal people worry. And think about his analogies. He uses birds and flowers as an example. See, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I tend to read Jesus as saying, hey, look, birds get food and flowers look pretty, so God will do that for you. But do bad things happen to birds? <laughs> yeah, Daniel, bad things happen to birds. Did you know that? It's a heartbreaker when you realize, yeah, that bad things happen to birds. <laughs> Uh, Bad things happen to birds. In fact, in Jesus' own context, they were bought and sold for food in the marketplace and used as animal sacrifices in the temple. So Jesus knew full well that bad things happen to birds. Heck, Jesus himself says that flowers are here today and gone, or in his words, tomorrow thrown into the fire, which is scary. And yet, birds and flowers, he says, don't chase after worry and concern because they are incapable of doing it. The point in Jesus saying, all these things will be given to you as well, I think, is not a a promise of basic provision. Instead, it's the idea that you can become the type of person that is free from worry. You can become the type of person who values the things that cannot be taken away. Treasure in God, in other words. And what's interesting is that as much as Christian bookstore culture loves to, you know, the idea of seek the kingdom and you get stuff. You know, how many, I don't know, maybe you guys are cooler than me and you haven't seen them yet, but there's a lot of wall art that quotes that (laughs) passage of Jesus divorced from context. Um, Which is funny because that isn't the end of the teaching. That isn't the conclusion. The last line in the teaching has to do with tomorrow will have enough trouble of its own. It's like, bummer, Jesus going out on a high note. Uh, And that's, that's classic Jesus. Elsewhere, he just straight up tells his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. Like, dang it, that doesn't sound good at all. And then, he, but then he, the whole context for that passage is don't worry. You're going to have trouble, but don't worry. What's the point? It won't stop trouble, he says in the pragmatic sense. It won't make your life any longer. The key is what you care for. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a job, that you shouldn't earn an income, that you shouldn't plan meals or provide for your families. Of course, be responsible, but do not worry. Because worry exposes idolatry. You worry about the things that you worship. And no, not 100% of all anxiety is rooted in idolatry, I know that. But frankly, I'm convinced the majority of it probably is. If I were not a disciple of Jesus, 
Um, I would be a nihilist or a nihilist, whichever pronunciation you prefer. If I were not convinced of Jesus' take on God, Jesus' take on the scriptures and life itself, the only other conceivable reality in my mind is that life is without objective meaning, without purpose, and without intrinsic value, frankly. Now, to be clear, I am a disciple of Jesus, so I reject nihilism at a fundamental level, but I'm also aware that my mind and my heart can wander in that direction when I look away from my teacher and my master. So, uh, my therapist, who's this great disciple of Jesus, really smart uh, PhD guy, has given me this phrase that we've talked about quite a bit for for a few years now, Um, and it's this idea of acceptance without despair. So I'll be in there like really anxious and fretting over some horrible possibility on the horizon and he'll often say, this drives Abby, my wife, crazy too, but he'll often say, you know what? That could happen. And then what? Um, Because at the heart of everything I believe is the idea that I am made in God's image. I am God's son, God's child. God's loving concern for me is irrevocable. It's steadfast, and that all of creation is en route to the redemption of everything that is good and the eradication of everything that is evil. So yes, there may and likely will be trouble on the horizon, and then what? I am still made in God's image. I am still God's child. I am still known and loved by God, and God will make everything new, so let tomorrow worry about itself. I read this week about a 16th century Mennonite called Dirk Willens. Uh, At the time in Holland, uh, this group of Christians called Mennonites were outlawed and often uh, executed upon capture. And one such Mennonite, Dirk Willens, was famously chased across an ice field in Holland and his pursuer fell through the ice into the water below. And he was caught up and he couldn't get out. You know, it's dangerous if you didn't know. And uh, hearing his cries for help, Dirk Willens returned and saved his pursuer from death. He pulled him out of the ice so that he would not freeze to death and die. The the Mennonites are famously emphasized enemy love and nonviolence. And then Dirk Willems was immediately arrested, taken into custody, and he was executed a few days later by being burned at the stake in his hometown. Seeking first the kingdom and God's righteousness, that disciple of Jesus found death as a result. And yet, in Jesus' incredible upside-down kingdom, It was actually Dirk Willens, the guy who was captured and killed, who was so free from anxiety that he could live out the way of Jesus and save an enemy from death. Dallas Willard, a thinker who has once or twice appeared in our conversations around the way of Jesus. That's a joke because I quote him all the time. Now you're in on the joke. You can laugh next time. Um, He puts it this way. People who are ignorant of God live to eat and drink and dress. Their lives are filled with corresponding anxiety about and anger and depression about how they will look and how they will fare. By contrast, those who understand Jesus and his Father know that provision has been made for them. Though they work, they do not worry about things on earth. Instead, they are always seeking first the kingdom. That is, they place top priority on identifying and involving themselves on what God is doing and in the the kind of rightness he has. All else needed is provided. 
A topic I've broached up here more than a few times is this idea that we in the modern Western world have this hyper-individualistic lens through which we see the world. But Jesus and the authors of Scripture do not share this assumption. For Jesus, the individual matters. Absolutely, you matter in the specific individual sense to Jesus. But the individual in the, in the Scriptures is always understood in the context of a community, in the context of a people. The idea Jesus emphasizes by mentioning animals, birds, and plants, is that humanity is God's highest concern in creation. He actually says, you're so much more valuable than they are. Yes, God does care deeply for the animal kingdom. That's evident from the scriptures. He cares about the environment. He made it. And yes, he wants to redeem and restore those things as well, but his highest concern is for people. So Jesus is saying, listen, if God cares about plants and animals, then you can absolutely trust his deep concern for his people. That's his top priority. If God is involved with creation, if he wants to do redemptive good for the whole cosmos, and he does, will he not be involved with and do good for people? They're his top priority. God is committed to his creation. If the story of scripture have taught us anything over and over and over and over again, it's that Yahweh, the creator God, refuses to give up on his beloved. Against all odds and flying in the face of everything we've done, he refuses to give up. He can and has and will get his hands dirty to do good in and rescue and care for and participate in the world. Now we, in our individualistic thinking, tend to interpret this. God promises to meet my expectations and base needs in the specific sense, and then, having assumed that that's what Jesus means, we maintain the right to disappointment when that doesn't happen, because often it doesn't. But if we can somehow learn to trust in God's character, in God's desire to do good for humanity and for the world, in his ongoing disposition of loving kindness toward us, regardless of the trouble that we can and will face, then maybe we will begin to learn to leave worry behind. Jesus is not here building a complex system of give and take between his disciples and God. He's urging his followers towards something called dependency. And in classic Jesus form, he's calling us to a far more radical paradigm of dependence than we expect. Because strange as it sounds, it would be easier to apply this passage as an encouragement to depend on God for food and clothes, basically, and that's it. Okay, I'll trust God, and he'll make ends meet for food on the table, money for the bills, you know, the classic platitude of God will provide. But that creates an immediate problem, like we've already said. What happens when God doesn't provide food on the table or money for the bills? What are we to say of the seemingly endless amount of Jesus' followers who are men and women and children who suffer and die because they don't have food on the table or money for bills? That, that sounds like one risky dependence on God. But I think Jesus is inviting his disciples into a deeper sort of dependence on God, which is all of our hope, all of our purpose, our sense of meaning, our sustenance for life and joy and love, all of it should be drawn from God and from God only, and that well will never go dry. Because when you look to something other than God for your true sustenance and your true provision, you are chasing after perishable things things that can and frankly will be taken from you, your money, your status, even your health, your comfort, your security, all of these things will wither and fade and die, like all of us. Realizing this, 
we begin to worry about when and how these things will be taken away or when and how we or our loved ones will be taken away. What and if we don't have enough money? What if we get sick? What if we're made to feel uncomfortable? What if our reputation suffers? And what if we die, which we will. On a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone drops to zero. These things are on the horizon. And listen, I'm not saying that that means you shouldn't care about any of those things. I'm not saying you shouldn't be responsible with those things. In fact, God wants you to have some sense of financial stability for the most part in the sense of providing for yourself and your family. He wants you to be physically healthy. He wants you to have upstanding character and reputation. This passage is not about planning and responsibility. This is a passage about worry. So I'm asking this, what happens when those things are stripped away and there's nothing you can do about it? I remember once, and this is a, a funny example, but bear with me. I had planned to get together with some friends, uh, an ordinary type of thing, and the purpose really was purely relational, to spend time with people that I loved. And for one reason or another, it just so happened that one by one, people began to cancel. They flaked, or life happened, or they really couldn't make it, whatever it might be. Eventually, it was down to just like one or two people, my wife, Abby, and I hanging out together. Um, and that was troubling to me. See, we did the uh, Enneagram together as a church a few months back. It's not an official translator of human behavior or anything, but I found a lot of it helpful. And in that process, I learned that um, I'm an Enneagram uh, 4 on the little chart there, and that means that I often have what a lot of the writers call very big emotions. Uh, so my personality is prone to like wild disappointment and mood swings, top of the mountain and depths of despair. So for me, this change of plans was a cause for despair because I had wanted something. I had envisioned it a certain way and it was a good thing. It was relational time with people that I loved. And now it wasn't gonna happen that way. Everything's ruined. No one loves me. No, nothing matters, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I remember Abby saying and her ever the rational one in the dynamic, was saying, well, you know, if what you were after was relational time with loved ones, you still have that. You know, no, it isn't what we planned or isn't what we hoped for, but it is a couple of friends, and do you need six for it to matter, or does this matter too? Now, it's obviously okay that I had made a plan and the plan had fallen through, and it's okay to be bummed when things don't work out, that's fine, but in the end, it really was a question of, is what I have enough, and am I drawing sustenance from the thing, the idea of relational connectedness or more than that, the ephemeral things on the outskirts of that plan. It's okay to want health, it's okay to want security, just so long as those things do not become idols. And the easiest way to determine that is how do you know if they've become idols? You worry about them. If they're taken away, will God be enough for sustenance and provision of his own character? New Testament scholar Scott McKnight says it well. He says, there are words, these are words for radicals about a radical lifestyle of trusting God for the ordinaries of life while devoting oneself unreservedly toward the kingdom mission. This passage is, is designed to make us feel uncomfortable about our lifestyle. Now we're almost done before we end tonight. I, I just wanna pry a bit. Um, do you think God cares about the little things? Most of us, I think, tend to believe that when we're in a crisis, you know, when we're in need, uh, when we, or, or in a good way, when we're compelled to worship, when we're celebrating, or when we weep, sure, God cares, God's personal, God is concerned. But we also tend to believe, at least in practice, that in the mundane, in the nuts and bolts, practicality that makes up the vast majority of our lives, God is not really all that concerned. He's far off, he's uninvolved, he's out of sight and out of mind. 
And I, uh, I realized that recently at just a core level. You know, I pray with my kids every day, the normal sort of intervals. We pray before meals. We talk about Jesus before bedtime. We pray for friends when they send a text and say, hey, pray for me. I'll invite my kids to come and pray. Um, and just this week, my son, Beck, who's four, he and I were praying together. And I just said, what would you like to talk to Jesus about? And he answered by mentioning someone in our community who has a sick dad, which was great. We said, yep, that's abs you're absolutely right. We should totally pray for them. Let's pray for them together. And we did. But I could also tell that Beck seemed to think that maybe this was the only type of thing that qualified for prayer because we'd gotten in the habit of praying for healing for people and things like that. So then knowing my son and knowing the things that he likes to talk about, I said, do you want to tell Jesus what your favorite dinosaur of the day is? Because that's a big one for him, you know, and it changes day to day. And he, like, looked taken aback for a moment. He's like, heck, yeah, I do. So he, like, <laughs> began to regale Jesus, you know, as, as the same way he would even a slightly interested party with all sorts of data about, you know, it's a theropod. It's from the late Cretaceous period, a carnivore. Its name means spined lizard, you know, all that stuff. And, and suddenly, out of that time, Jesus, I like the Spinosaurus. Um, Jesus, he's a theropod that's really cool to me. Uh, he, became, he became filled with new questions about Jesus. They were cracking me up. He's like, where is Jesus? I'm like, oh, geez, that's hard. Um, he's like, can he hear me right now? I was like, yeah, I can absolutely hear you right now. He goes, does he have eyes? I'm like, yeah, he has eyes. Um, but what it made me realize was that with that small gesture, Jesus had become more real to this kid who was all of a sudden like, oh, well, he wants to hear me talk about dinosaurs? Wow, it's not just that we ask for sick people to get better. Because it seems to me that my son, not unlike his dad, already has the, a bit of tenacity for the things that interest him. Uh, a while back, uh, my sister, who lives in Georgia, sent me this cartoon, and her accompanying text said, just, this is you. And that was it. And I was like, is it? And then Abby was like, yes, that's, that's you to a fault. So when something interests me personally, I tend to like pour over it and turn it over in my head and research it and dwell on it and read about it and bring it up again and again and again and again. This, uh, this week, I was trying to think about an example. I'm like, well, in a 12-hour period, I gave, I gave Abby like a lengthy monologue describing the mechanics of one of my synthesizers. And then I started immediately telling her about all the different drafts of the screenplay for, that became Jurassic World. I'm like, then they hired this writer, and he came in. At one point, it involved a castle in Switzerland. Crazy, and dinosaur hybrid. And she's just look, looking at me now and being like, oh, this is really important right now. And I included those details about the Jurassic World screenplay because I couldn't resist. I wanted to tell you guys, too. My point is that it doesn't anymore, so those aren't spoilers. My point is that, <laughs> I guess that was a spoiler. My point is that <laughs> maybe it has a Swiss castle or not. You don't know if you haven't seen it. Uh, this is part of how I think and communicate, right? And wanting to grow in intimacy with God, I found myself on a walk uh, last year one morning, and I was praying and the normal sorts of things, and I decided to simply talk to God that way. I was like really amped to talk to someone about this thing I had been reading, so I, was like, I guess I'll tell God about this article I read. He knows about it, but, and I found myself in conversation. It was essentially telling God about my favorite dinosaur, so to speak, like my son does, because I, like I'm sure some of you, have sometimes struggled to accept and to trust in God's profound affection for me. Um, having kids has been helpful in that process because, you know, if I care when my son tells me about his dinosaurs, if I want to look at my son in his eye while he talks to me and clear away distraction, if I'm enamored with and excited about his excitement and his passion, then what does that say about God? Isn't God a better dad than I am? That's me with all my flaws 
Doesn't God want to hear from his kids, from, from you, his sons and daughters, about the things that you care about? I think the answer is yes. And, and think about the language Jesus uses in tonight's passage. Is Jesus teaching on worry a suggestion or a command? It's a command. Isn't that weird? It's scary, isn't it? Do not worry. It seems to me that Jesus' prohibition against worry hits many of us as harsh because it seems like one of the most difficult teachings of Jesus. He asks so much. It's like, really, after all the nonviolence and enemy love and we can't pursue riches and now don't worry on top of all, man, Jesus is so harsh and he expects so much. He's so hardcore. He's so demanding. Don't worry. And then you start to read the command again and again. And you're like, Jesus doesn't want me to worry. Jesus doesn't want me to worry. And you realize how kind and compassionate that command truly is. Do you find it interesting that Jesus was a happy person? You know, do you read Jesus in the scriptures with a scowl or like a somber, gloomy face? Or do you read him as a jovial, kind of happy, kind-hearted person? And I ask that for a reason. You know, think about it. What the story of the Bible is getting at is this beautiful, joyous union of God with his beloved. And that's us, to be clear. That's humanity. And yes, we know Jesus was well acquainted with grief. He was an emotionally balanced and mature person. He had sorrow, frustration, suffering, disappointment, all those things that it means to be a, a dynamic human, um, as all of us have had or will have. But Jesus was happy. He drew joy from God as a bottomless resource available to him at all times. And Jesus is after your joy. Jesus, your teacher, your master, your Lord, is after your joy. And so he commands his disciples, do not worry. Because does worry make you happy? Uh, how many of you guys, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but just answer mentally. How many of you guys are by wiring of your personality worriers? Do you enjoy worrying? I'm assuming not. I don't think of myself as a worrier, but I know what it's like to worry. And I, I want to point something out. Without Jesus, there are actually really good reasons to be anxious about your stuff or your next paycheck, about your comfort and your security. Because without a deeper, truer significance and sustenance, we are left with only the things that spoil and fade. So those without Jesus, can live this way uh, as is logical to do so, to worry about the next thing. But why, we have to ask ourselves, would we as disciples of Jesus, as, as children of God, choose to live that way? A few years ago, I remember hearing a story uh, from new foster parents, and I think this might be a fairly common phenomenon, but this, they, they had taken a little boy into their home and this uh, small little guy had maintained this tragic habit of sneaking food from the dinner table and hiding it in his room because in his previous home, he'd been denied food for days at a time. So in order to survive, he had taken to secret hoarding of, of food so that he could make it if, if the next meal didn't come. And of course, when his foster parents realized what was going on there, their hearts were broken and they'd sit down with him and say, no anger, no discipline or you know, frustration with him, but with evil. And they'd say, listen, you don't have to hide food anymore. That time is over. But you know, when a child has been without a faithful sustenance for so long, old habits die hard, and it took a really long time for this kid to stop hiding food in his room. So listen to me when I say, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you don't have to worry anymore. That time is over. Jesus' command is not just a sort of common sense life hack. You know, he's not inviting you and I 
into a, a new reality that just makes more sense as a person. He's inviting us into a new way of life made possible only by a new reality coming to pass in and through him. Uh, professor and theologian Stanley Hauerwas says it like this, the temptation is to assume that Jesus' admonition not to worry is some general human truth that is true whether Jesus says it or not. But as we have seen, the content of the Sermon on the Mount cannot be abstracted from the one who delivers the sermon. That we are now able to love, freed of possession, is because the one who has come, who alone has the power to dispossess us. Jesus' recommendation that we not worry about tomorrow because the trouble of today is enough is not just good advice, but rather wisdom that reflects God's new creation, made manifest in Christ's life and ministry. But, like foster children, continuing to hoard food, we worry. We worry, will God's sustenance be enough? And oh, the irony, because I am learning that my fear that God will prove insufficient is rooted not in any indication of scarcity. It hasn't, it hasn't been as though like God has given me an indication that his sustenance is not good enough. It's in my own inability to fathom God's goodness. What I mean is this, I have a friend here at Van City, he and I were sitting in my office recently, we were talking about the scriptures, and both of us uh, share a common flaw in our discipleship to Jesus. We read about God's goodness, we see it, we experience it, and yet we doubt it. And surely we think, this is too good to be true. It just sounds like it's too good to be true. Maybe it's true for everyone else, but for me, that's very hard to believe. An English priest, Sam Wells, describes the problem like this. The problem is that the human imagination is simply not large enough to take in all that God is and has to give. We are overwhelmed. God's inexhaustible creation, his limitless grace, his relentless mercy, his enduring purpose, his fathomless love, it is just too much to contemplate, assimilate, understand. This is the language of abundance. And if humans turn away, it is sometimes of our misguided but understandable sense of self-protection, a preservation of identity in the face of a tidal wave of glory. Part of our journey in learning what it means to follow Jesus well is somehow accepting that God is indeed as good as he seems to be. And that's enough. And this confounds our own sensibilities of goodness while simultaneously putting them to shame. God is better than we can imagine. His love is greater than we dare hoped it could be. And somehow, even if we go without, even though we have trouble, that can be enough. And if that's true, then there is no longer a single thing to worry about. And so Jesus commands his disciples, do not worry. With those words ringing in our heads, let's pray together and invite God's Spirit to come and speak over us again.